Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Wallace Thornhill. He, along with David Talbot, is the author of The Electric Universe and Thunderbolt of the Gods. What they are saying is that we need a new paradigm and a new cosmology to understand what's happening in the universe. We don't really understand black holes. We don't really understand the Big Bang. And we don't understand dark matter because really they don't exist. What we need to find out from Wall Thornhill is that we live in an electric universe and that many of our religious beliefs about how, quote, the universe started may be wrong. But there's good news with finding this out. So I've invited him here to talk to us about how science has to change. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Wallace Thornhill to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning to you in Australia. Hello, hello. Hi there, Kim. How are you? Pleasure to have you. I'm fine, thank you. I want to read one of your quotes that I think really epitomizes what you're doing here. Mm -hmm. You say, from the smallest particle to the largest galactic formation, a web of circuitry and the electric force connects and unifies all of nature, organizing galaxies energizing stars, giving birth to planets, and on our world, controlling weather and animating biological organisms. There are no isolated islands in space. If that isn't the essence of what you're bringing to us, talk to us about why the Big Bang doesn't exist. Well, the evidence has been around for decades that uh, the Big Bang is a result of a misinterpretation of Edwin Hubble's work. Uh, he was the one who found a relationship between the redshift, that is, the apparent um, speed of recession of an object, and its faintness. Of course, naturally, you would think that something that's faint is, is far away. But uh, Edwin Hubble himself said that this is the most unlikely explanation and that it is probably telling us something about the object itself rather than that it's moving away from us very fast. And uh, he's one of his outstanding pupils, uh, Halton Arp, the astronomer, uh, in producing a, a, an atlas of what are called peculiar galaxies. That's galaxies that are shaped oddly, as if they've been disturbed in some way. In doing that, he found that these very faint objects tended to cluster around uh, active galaxies. And that, that's galaxies that are ejecting material um, along the axis of their rotation. And uh, the objects are generally, these faint objects are generally called quasars, quasis, quasi-stellar objects. And uh, he found, in fact, that the redshifts were more an indication of the youthfulness of these objects. They're faint because they're youthful, they haven't achieved full brightness, and they have a high redshift because there's something going on inside them which is not understood at present by science for which I've offered some um, possibilities uh, in, in answering that uh, problem. Uh, the fact that they're faint and they're redshifted is just that they're very youthful. And this gives rise to the idea that galaxies actually give birth to baby galaxies. And in their initial state, they look like quasars. That's fascinating. They're quite biological overtones to the galaxy. It's like repeated patterns at all scales. The Big Bang, this is in the Genesis of the Bible. Mm -hmm. You said something in your DVD at the yes. Nexus conference where you lectured there. You mm -hmm. said, how did nothing all of a sudden create something from nothing? It doesn't make sense. Exactly. Explain that on your terms. 
<laughs> I laughed when I heard that. I mean, I'm in love with the Big Bang Theory because it's kind of sexy. <laughs> uh, that's, that's right. You know in what fact. I mean? I happen to be Jewish, so I was like, right on, you know. But when I heard you talk about it like that, it really made sense. Of course, I lost my innocence because the Big Bang, <laughs> it didn't make sense to me then. So explain it to the public. Well, the idea that uh, matter is created uh, at the beginning of the universe in this so-called Big Bang uh, flies in the face of everything we understand about matter, um, and that is very little. Um, Einstein's famous equation, the one that most people have heard of and can recite but don't understand, E equals mc squared, says that energy is related to the mass of an object and to uh, the speed of light. That means that uh, mass is a function of matter, uh, and uh, its energy is also bound up in the matter, but we still don't know what matter is. Would you believe that in this day and age, we still don't understand why matter has mass? This is why they built that huge uh, Large Hadron Collider. That scares me, that Hadron Collider. It really scares me that they're playing around with something they shouldn't be playing around with. Am I wrong? Well, basically, they don't know what they're doing, but uh, I wouldn't be too worried. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just a total waste of money, really. All that happens I don't want us all to turn to nothing, Well, <laughs> <laughs> Well, all of the scares about black holes and so on are based on a misconception of uh, uh, what matter is and how it's related to energy. In fact, it comes back to this Big Bang question. And uh, the answer is that we have no idea how the universe was formed. And I think we should be more, uh, or show more humility when it comes to thinking that, or, as somebody once said, a radio astronomer, a friend of mine once said, uh, what, how can we, in our arrogance, assume that in the first microsecond of asking the question, we have the answer to the formation of the universe? <laughs> it's pretty wild, isn't it, when you think about it? <laughs> but it is definitely attractive, isn't it? All of a sudden, there was light. Let there be light. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. It's a, a biblical reference transferred into sure. uh, science. Um, the answer, from my point of view, is that we don't know. And Halton Arp's work shows that the universe isn't expanding, that these things that are supposed to be at the end of the universe are actually quite close and uh, actually newly born. So we have to reinterpret the whole idea of uh, what we're looking at. This gives you a completely different picture of the local universe. And it's a very interesting one because you can actually trace the genealogy, the families of galaxies, because if galaxies give birth to baby galaxies and uh, companion galaxies, you can trace them back. So the Milky Way is a member of a family. And, uh, now that sounds very spiritual to me. Yeah, Actually, the way uh, you describe that sounds very sacred to me. Yeah. Uh, really, it just comes back to common sense. You don't have to be a mathematician to understand the electric universe. Uh, it's based on observation. Um, it's based on electrical engineering principles and experiment all these things which science is supposed to be based on, not on theoretical mathematics. You say that we've been operating with a kind of horse and buggy cosmology. Yes. Newton's laws of gravity, are they wrong or are they questionable? No, Newton, uh, mathematics, you see, just describes the behavior of things. It doesn't explain anything. And Newton knew that, and he was uh, clever enough and sensible enough to say that I, I have no idea why it's so, but this is the formula that seems to work to, um, to describe what gravity does why objects fall to the Earth and why the moon orbits around the Earth and so on. Uh, but when you look at his equation, there is no time involved. 
And this is something that um, physicists sort of skate over and, and don't even recognize it as a problem anymore. But that implies that the force of gravity operates uh, across the universe near instantly at phenomenal speed, far in excess of the speed of light. And there was one astronomer who had the courage to actually do some calculations based on astronomical phenomena and point out that the speed of gravity is at least two uh, billion, billion times faster than the speed of light. And this is where I got to this idea that the universe is connected in real time. And this is why everything is connected. You know, we're connected to the universe in real time. And this is a, almost a spiritual uh, way of looking at things, of looking at life. It also means that uh, we, in some way, are the self-referential part of the universe. In other words, what we witness, the universe learns about. So it's learning about itself through us. So why are we here? The answer is to learn, because this is what the universe is all about. It seems to be a, uh, a feedback system. And this is required for life anyway. I mean, it's been obvious that you can't just have random events uh, to generate life. It has to be a, a learning experience which is then passed on generation to generation. Otherwise, the whole thing becomes incoherent and falls apart. <clears throat> the same thing occurs to galaxies. I mean, a galaxy could not form those beautiful spirals if we relied on the snail's pace of the speed of light for the transfer of information. You know, the stars on one side of a galaxy have to know where the other ones are to be able to actually spiral. Uh, the solar system, the planets have to know where the sun is right at this instant. If they didn't, if they didn't, uh, if they weren't pulled to where the sun is right at this instant, they would be slung out of the solar system like a slingshot. We know that doesn't happen, but this is never, um, it's not questioned. You know, these, these basic questions are skimmed over. We're not taught them to think about them at school. Uh, by the time you get to university, you've been brainwashed to the point where they don't even appear as a question. And I think this is a failure of our education system. We're not challenging kids to think about these basic, simple ideas and question what our forebears have passed down to us. Can I clarify something that I'm not clear about? Is mm -hmm. your basic stance regarding gravity that it shouldn't be the operating force we're thinking about or that it shouldn't be the primary emphasis in science? In cosmology. In, in cosmology. Define cosmology for us, please. Cosmology is really the study of our existence in the universe. Um, and the funny point of it is, of course, that the Big Bang has nothing sensible to say about our existence. It's a kind of haphazard, um, it's completely random kind of uh, theory, which you can just add barnacles to it as you go to <laughs> cover new discoveries. And this is what happens, of course. Everything is a surprise when it's discovered, but it's patched onto the, um, the theory. And this is not the way to go about science. Uh, it's better if you can have a, a model which you can make predictions from, uh, which are then borne out. But Big Bang Theory has never been able to do that. All of its predictions, it, well, it, it stopped making predictions. Does Stephen Hawking believe in the Big Bang? Is he a proponent of the Big Bang Theory? Yes, I think um, all the leading uh, scientists and astrophysicists uh, believe in the Big Bang. And I think that's the key word, they believe, believe. in it. Okay. Yeah. You call the Big Bang model the Poltemic universe? Am I saying that right? Well, I, I don't think those are my words. Okay. Uh, I think uh, basically it's just a, a story. It's like um, the traditional stories of the uh, Aboriginal nations. Um, it's just another version where you uh, set up your narrative 
which is not to be questioned, otherwise you're excommunicated or dealt with by you know, those who um, look after the story. Um, but it has nothing much more to say about our existence than those old traditional cosmologies. You had also said that radio astronomers are very important to translating and showing evidence for the fact that we live in an electric universe. Explain why. The reason I say that is that um, the work of the Nobel Prize winning plasma physicist Hans Zelfane uh, showed that uh, you can actually trace circuits around the sun and show that there are electric currents flowing within the solar system. You can take that then and look at galaxies, and the same thing applies, that uh, electric currents flow in along into the poles and then out along the spiral. And it's those electric currents which um, are responsible for people trying to find forces or matter that doesn't really exist because they don't take into account the electrical currents. Now, these electrical currents generally uh, in the form of in invisible, what are known as Birkeland currents, which are just like the high-voltage transmission lines we see you know, draped across the countryside. And in the same way that they don't glow in the dark, uh, the Birkeland currents don't glow either. But they can be traced by radio telescopes because they give off radio waves. It's just like the uh, radio noise you get for the hum, the 50-cycle power hum you get from power lines. You can pick it up by the appropriate radio detectors. So initially radio astronomy was thought to be a total waste of time. Astronomers thought, you know, there's, there's nothing worth looking at there um, in space for in uh, radio waves. But it, the reverse has been found, that they've been able to discover things which the um, astronomers using normal telescopes, uh, visible telescopes and X-ray and so on, haven't been able to see. And they can actually trace the circuits, which makes it very important in an electric universe because we... The critical thing in understanding the electric universe is to understand that uh, we are connected electrically. There are electric currents flowing through everything, through the universe. Which brings me to the next question. You know mm -hmm. how when we were all very young, people would say, oh, you're in the ethers. That's an etheric thing. People would make jokes about the ethers. Mm -hmm. I don't know if where you grew up, people did that every now and then, but they did where I live. I live in Los Angeles. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so there was a lot of, oh, you're from the ethers, you know, if you're artistic or creative. But yes. then other people came around and said, no, really, there is something called the ether. Is there, from your perspective, does something called the ether exist from your cosmology? Okay, talk about it. Well, back in the 19th century, it was known that the ether had to exist. In fact, Maxwell's equations for radio waves uh, and light uh, require that you have a medium for a wave to exist. You can't have a wave in nothing. You can't wave nothing. So from that very obvious uh, standpoint, uh, there has to be an ether. But Einstein discarded it without explaining how he could still, um, <laughs> how light could still function. I think we have, uh, we really have to re-examine Einstein's work, and particularly of those who followed him uh, without question. Uh, because I think they'd bequeath us a completely um, Alice in Wonderland universe. So the, the reason you need an ether is, uh, first, that you cannot have an electric field in empty space. It has to uh, focus on a charged particle or on a particle which in, incorporates char other charged particles. So the ether has to be made up of matter. And I suggest in the electric universe that that matter is actually these neutrinos. Now, you I think most people have heard of neutrinos. They're I haven't. To... <laughs> I'm in the vacuum <Okay>. here. 
standing in the vacuum. (laughs) Surely I'm in the vacuum listening. Yeah, well, neutrinos are supposed to be the least massive. In fact, for a long time, they were thought to have no mass. So uh, they almost don't exist, so to speak, in physics terms. But they were required to make the um, equations work out, you know. Anyway, they were finally discovered and detected, and now they've got neutrino detectors in the um, down deep in mines in various parts of the world to detect neutrinos from the sun because the nuclear reactions that occur on the sun produce neutrinos, and these neutrinos have no charge, so they just whiz through matter as if it's not there. In fact, it was calculated that they could travel through light years of lead shielding without hitting anything to give you some idea of how non-interactive they are. Well, I suggest in the electric universe that neutrinos are actually the ether. They are the substrate. They're the thing that, they're the material that waves when you, a light wave travels through so-called empty space or radio waves travel through space. And uh, therefore light or the speed of light is merely a characteristic of the medium. It's a characteristic of um, the neutrinos. Light travels at different speeds in different media. So that's all it is. Light is a disturbance in a medium. It's, it's as simple as that. It's not a particle. You don't have to invoke particles in the electric universe model uh, because then you run into this crazy situation in physics where one experiment, you talk about light as being a photon or a particle, and another one, it has to be a wave. Now, you can't have it both ways. What is a photon? A photon is a so-called virtual particle. In other words, it's one invented to try and explain what is observed, and that is the transfer of energy from one atom to another at a distance, uh, but only in packets. In other words, it has to be just the right amount. It can't be more or less. It has to be just the right amount. A photon is nothing, or it's just an invented word? I mean, there's biophotonics. There's a whole field. It's an invention uh, based on quantum theory, and quantum theory is virtually a mathematical recipe book with no explanation in physics. In, in reality. So they invent particles where necessary uh, to explain things, but these particles have no real existence. I always thought a photon was a light wave. No. Uh, I think some of us who don't study this receive mm. that as being photon is energy of light or something like that. I don't know what it is. Well, uh, neither do the physicists. <laughs> <laughs> neither do the people who talk confidently about it. So do you think a vacuum has matter in it? Yes. If you produce the most perfect vacuum, say you had a, a, a glass jar and you managed to suck every atom of air out of it, okay, there it would still be full of neutrinos because neutrinos can pass through the glass walls of that tube as if it wasn't there. So it's as full of neutrinos as you know the same object next to it uh, in in uh, in the atmosphere. So you cannot uh, create a perfect vacuum. It's always full of neutrinos. And if neutrinos are made up of normal matter, which, you know, they must be to exist, then they are made up of uh, charged particles. And when you have charged particles, you can transfer a radio wave through it or X-rays or uh, light. Again, you need a medium for a wave to pass through. You cannot have a perfect vacuum. Okay. Where did that expression, nature abhors a vacuum, come from? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I like it, uh, but where did it come from? 
That's just one of those glib statements that if there is uh, a vacuum somewhere, then uh, the surrounding material will try and rush in to fill the space. <laughs> Do you accept that? Uh, well, insofar as it's, uh, you know, you can apply it in space, for instance. Um, it has fairly limited use. I wouldn't use it as a, um, uh, a paradigm. <laughs> okay. Because I maintain that sometimes when you ask a question and you hold the question, you create mm -hmm. a vacuum for the answer to come rushing in. Yeah, I think that's also known as the law of attraction. I don't know about that, but this is something I thought about like 25 years ago. Yeah. And I noticed every time I ask the question and hold the question, things come in. That is known as the law of attraction. In other words, it is? Yeah. They don't teach you how it's, to ask questions. <laughs> no, uh, but um, it's a case of the universe. If we're connected to the rest of the universe yeah. instantly, right. then anything that goes on in our mind is also uh, accessible to right. the rest of the universe. Right. And that means we're all connected. Everyone's connected. So if you have a question in your mind, then it's sitting out there looking for <laughs> There is an answer somewhere. Right. If there is an answer somewhere, then there's a good chance that you're in a state to receive it. I didn't know that was called the law of attraction. I thought it was something else. No, it's a bit like being tuned to the right radio station. You won't hear yeah. it unless you tune in. Did you study the law of attraction? I have looked at that because that fits with the electric universe model of uh, Indeed. You know, Indeed. life and biological interactions. It also helps understand the mind-body connection. I found it very palatable to people who had never talked about and considered manifestation. I ran around with a question for 25 years, how to expedite the financing of solutions and discoveries around the world. Mm -hmm. And it took me all over the world to get some of the information on how that would be done. Mm -hmm. Very interesting journey. Yeah, well, that's a similar story for me. Um, my interest in this began when I was... Um, in primary and secondary school, and uh, a book I read a book um, when I was at high school uh, by Emanuel Velikovsky, Worlds in Collision. It was a bestseller on the New York um, uh, Times bestseller list in 1950, and uh, that opened my eyes to a way of doing science which is more based on the um, police investigation style, you know, the forensic evidence, where you take evidence from a whole lot of unreliable witnesses and try and figure out what actually happened. And uh, it was from that that I learned that, uh, well, I thought Velikovsky, the author of the book, had uh, made a very good case for the solar system having recently undergone um, catastrophes, you know, and the Earth having been involved in it. But it's taken decades to actually get the hard evidence to show that this is true, even though there was strong circumstantial evidence at the time. But now we have the um, kind of evidence that would hold up in court I think, and this is if you think about it, a lot of uh, scientific theories that are put out uh, would never stand up in court <laughs> if they were subjected to the same kind of cross-examination. So I feel fairly confident that we're on the right track with that, and that introduced me to the idea that the ancients talked about the thunderbolt, the cosmic thunderbolt, the thunderbolt of the gods having been involved in these interactions between planets which came very close to one another. In other words, the solar system as we see it today is not the one that our uh, forebears witnessed. All of these things were very unsettling at the time, but um, they opened the way to understanding the universe as it really is, and not as we would wish it to be, uh, which is a stable, clockwork, Newtonian, gravitational system. It's not. When you talked about the sun, you also mm -hmm. said that the sun is nothing like what we think it is. That's right. It's something totally different. Share that with us. 
Well, we look at the great uh, shining ball in the sky and we're told that all of that heat and light comes from something going on at the centre of the sun. For that to be true, the sun has to be a body unlike any other body that we know. Uh, it means that the uh, lethal radiation from a nuclear thermonuclear reactor at the centre of each star has to somehow be broken down into radiation which is benign for life, you know, the heat and light, instead of X-rays and gamma rays and uh, nuclear radiation of that description. And that requires a body that transfers um, heat and light and so on internally in the form of radiation. Well, we know of no other body like that. The other thing is that when you look at the sun, all of the things that are happening in plain view uh, suggest that that model's incorrect. But because we've been brought up with that idea for more than 100 years, uh, and uh, we I can understand why that is, but we've been given that story for 100 years or more, it's very hard to break away from that story because people think you're crazy. Is it electromagnetic? The sun is like uh, a kind of electric light in the sky. The surface, so-called surface of the sun, the glowing uh, sphere that we see, has all of the characteristics of uh, an arc discharge, the kind that they used to use in searchlights. And... Um, <clears throat> The, the, all of the effects we see, the flares, the uh, magnetic field, which is quite strange, the mag magnetic field on the sun, can all be explained if the sun is acting like uh, an electric discharge phenomenon. So what we're looking at in the sky is uh, virtually a ball of lightning, where each lightning bolt is in the form of a huge electric tornado, packed, close, close packed, so that you get that granular effect when you look at it very closely. And occasionally it has outbursts, electrical outbursts, and it shoots material, you know, billions of tons of material out into space. Now, you can't do that with gravity, and there's no explanation for it in terms of a nuclear reactor at the centre of the sun. And if it was a nuclear reactor at the centre of the sun, we should expect stars to be going off like the 4th of July, because it's a very unstable model. It's one which tends to um, uh, destruct rather than to exist peacefully for billions of years. And what does this translation mean to science? Well, it's <laughs> the complete theory. When you think about cosmology, cosmology, as I said, is supposed to be our story of our existence in the universe, which means you have to understand uh, the biology, uh, the formation of the Earth, the formation of the solar system, the formation of galaxies. All of these things are still huge problems for the Big Bang Theory. And uh, the Big Bang Theory has absolutely nothing really sensible to say about any of them. If you have the correct cosmology, there can be no exceptions in any discipline. You can ask a question in any discipline you can think of. It can be um, uh, to do with religion. It can be to do with uh, the history of the human race, uh, geology, paleontology, um, geology, anything you like to name. There has to be an answer. It has to be connected to the cosmology because that's the overarching big picture. Now, the Big Bang has nothing useful to say about any of these things. Uh, the electric universe, on the other hand, takes the evidence from geology, archaeology, religion, um, all of these things I've mentioned, and they all come together. So this picture doesn't have huge gaping holes in it. And that's, I think, where it has a big appeal to people who, who are casting around for answers. Uh, and it's also a very hopeful story because it places us 
as an integral part of the entire universe instead of the Big Bang where everything's flying apart, it's winding down, it's all going to end up in either a heat death as they call it or a big crunch when it all comes back together again. This is a completely hopeless cosmology and I can understand why um, people feel there is no answers for them in science and so that we busy ourselves with um, our activities, our children are turned off from science because it doesn't seem to offer any use, useful um, information for them about life and our existence. All of these things, I think, can be turned right around once we get the cosmology right. You say that quantum theory and relativity theory are incompatible. Yes. Why? Explain it. Well, they're both at the heart of the Big Bang cosmology, of course. Uh, I asked you a little question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, as I said before, quantum theory is a set of mathematical descriptions of how matter operates at the subatomic level. And uh, it's not supposed to work at anything other than the subatomic level. And it, it's been a real problem for scientists trying to figure out why, is the, why does the world look the way it does when when you get down to the quantum world, it's weird. You know, things happen that shouldn't happen according to a uh, common sense view of the way things are supposed to work. And then at the other end of the scale, you've got Einstein's theory, which is applied on the grand scale of gravity and the universe and, and uh, gravitational cosmology. And basically, when you look at Einstein's work, it doesn't make sense. It's as simple as that. You know, there's been thousands of books written trying to explain Einstein's theories. Uh, and you've got to ask yourself why, if it's you know supposed to be at the core of our existence and um, and so simple. And the answer is basically that what Einstein did was to take something, take appearances, and say that they were real. It's like a bit like watching somebody disappearing in the distance on um, on a back of a train or something like that, and they appear to dwindle in size. And we know that as the train moves away from us, the sound from the train whistle goes to a lower note. The tick of a clock of somebody wearing a watch on that um, train will slow. And yet we know that the person on the train doesn't experience shrinkage and he doesn't experience his watch running slow. But what Einstein said was that the, this is real. It's not. It's an, it's an appearance. And it's an appearance based on the speed of light. In other words, he said that the speed of light is the fastest speed that anything can travel at, that information can travel at. But if that's wrong, and I'm saying that it is, because as I said, gravity has to be able to operate between the sun and the earth near instantly. The sun, the earth is dragged towards the sun where it is right at this instant, not where it appears in the sky. Then you don't have this delay. There is no real difference in the ticking of the clocks of the person moving away from you. Uh, they're not the space that they're in isn't shrinking. Uh, these are just appearances; they're not real. But by Einstein's uh, postulates, these became real for science, and as a result, we've ended up with science fiction. At the quantum level, uh, Halton Arp, who I mentioned earlier, did the study on these quasars as they move away from their parent. Now they move away uh, quite often along the axis. It's like having a Catherine wheel. And uh, from the center spindle, little objects are born and they go away from their parent, away along that axis. He found that very close in, 
these objects had a certain redshift, and at a further distance out, they had another redshift. And wherever he went, these redshifts occurred in jumps, discrete jumps. There was never an in-between level. And this is, this is quantum mechanics applied at the galactic scale. So the idea that quantum uh, phenomena only occur at the subatomic is wrong. And this also shows that the so-called spooky things that happen at the subatomic level are due to the fact that the particles actually can communicate much faster than the speed of light. So all these things that are so-called spooky are not spooky at all. Once you get rid of Einstein's idea that the speed of light limits what can happen or the information that can be transferred from matter to matter over distances. So um, the incompatibilities arise because of this idea that one applies at the subatomic level and the other applies at the galactic level and never the two, two shall meet. I'm saying that, yes, they do meet, but it's only because you've got your ideas wrong. Einstein's theories are wrong, and quantum mechanics is based on a non-physical model. So you're somewhere in between with this. You're really in the... I'm, I'm saying the answer is in no man's land. Yeah, nobody, okay, well, yeah, nobody. okay, that's better, much better. <laughs> I was a tournament tennis player for 13 years, so I do understand no man's land on the court, and it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It can be difficult. Why is plasma 99% of the universe? And explain what plasma is for us. <clears throat> yes, um, <laughs> it is a problem talking about plasma because there's blood plasma, of course, which yes. is uh, the fluid in uh, that flows around the body in the, in the blood. Um, but the plasma that we're talking about is um, what happens when you pass electricity through a thin gas, for instance, and the energy of the electricity is enough to split the atoms apart so that you get bits of atoms which are positive and then the electrons that were stripped off which are negative all moving around separately. When you have that situation electrical and magnetic fields have a big influence on what happens in that gas and this is what happens in space. And uh, astronomers when they finally got into space with uh, space probes they discovered that most, almost all of the visible universe is in the form of plasma. Now we don't experience plasma on Earth and so most of the um, experimental work in science that was done up until about the 19th century uh, had no idea about plasma. And we still don't really under, uh, have any idea on a day-to-day -day basis of what it can do. And yet it really is quite remarkable. It has almost lifelike qualities, and that may be one of the reasons why it was given the name plasma. Uh, if you apply, if you poke it, it responds by creating um, shields around itself. It'll form cells, it'll form sheets, it'll form filaments. You've all seen those little uh, plasma balls, novelty yes. plasma balls with all those filaments writhing around inside. It looks like it's alive. That's the same kind of thing that goes on in space, only in slow motion, if you like. We see it on the sun when it has its, its outbursts. All the outbursts are filamentary. And those filaments are actually the electric currents that are flowing through space. So um, if most of the universe is in this form of plasma, to ignore its characteristics when you pass electricity through it is a, a huge mistake. And it is a huge mistake uh, currently in astrophysics because astrophysicists are taught only to treat gas like a fluid, like a liquid. And that's wrong. The liquid doesn't form filaments, it doesn't form uh, sheaths around objects if you put an object inside. 
it, it doesn't do any of these things, and yet these are what we see in space. So then you have the problem. It's like looking at a comet and saying that it's just gas and dust coming off from a, a little piece of rock. It's not at all. What we do see are jets, and those jets are the, the kinds of things that you see in electrical discharges. You see them on the sun. When you see this huge coma, which can be bigger than the sun, you've got to ask yourself the question, how on earth can a tiny piece of rock control a globe the size of the sun, of plasma? It can't, but electrical forces can. So uh, the difficulty we have at present is that astronomers look at things in deep space and they have these wonderful pictures that come back from the Hubble telescope and other telescopes, and they look at them and they have no idea what they're looking at. And so we get uh, really strained and um, impossible explanations, which are published in the papers and in the magazines. And we're fed, as I said, just science fiction. Let's talk a little bit about space-time. And I know that you don't like that term because it's totally <laughs> inaccurate and misleading. So yes. talk to us about space and time and share what issues you have with the way these words are used. I think one of the big problems that uh, <clears throat> we have in science at present is we've allowed mathematicians to um, take the running with the story. And mathematicians can be extremely clever uh, with their use of uh, mathematical logic, but it has nothing to do with uh, natural philosophy, which is the origins of um, science and in particular cosmology. The use of the word space and time together as if they have some connection is an example of the misuse of language uh, by uh, physicists or by mathematicians. Uh, space as a concept we all know about. Um, we can talk about uh, space enclosing a volume and you can define that volume by vectors, you know, radius and um, uh, you can also specify by three directions, you know, up, down, uh, the two sideways directions, length and width. But when you talk about time in the same breath in space-time, as one uh, scientist pointed out, point me in the direction of time. If you can't point in the direction <laughs> of time, then you're, you're talking nonsense. They're two different concepts. You know, time is the interval between events. And if the electric universe model is correct and that there is a universal clock ticking, then um, uh, you cannot fiddle with time. You can't uh, stretch it. You can't slow it down, speed it up. There is a universal uh, time, as distinct from Einstein's one, where you know clocks could be the um, <laughs> Salvador Dali type clocks. You know where you could bend them and warp them out of um, recognition. So time is a separate concept. To ally it with space and call it a dimension is the misuse of the word dimension because dimension is uh, something which has a direction. Yeah. When you hold a ruler, you've got to you know, point it in the direction you want to measure and it has a length. And, um, of course, uh, time doesn't have those. So you can't call space a time a four-dimensional arrangement. And to talk about ten dimensions is mere sophistry. It has nothing to do with the real world because mathematicians' use of the word dimension often means degree of freedom. It's not a real world um, dimension as we understand it. And yet we are confused by it 
because they use the same word, but it means something different. And there's no need for any of that nonsense in uh, the Atrium Universe. We just say the uh, world is composed, or the universe is composed, based on three dimensions, and the universal ticking clock. It's very simple. When you say universal ticking clock, does that have anything to do with synchronicity? And can you explain to us what synchronicity is from your perspective? And does synchronicity belong in a paradigm about the electric universe from your perspective? Yeah, I think synchronicity, as I understand it, <clears throat> means that events uh, happen in such a way that uh, it's almost as if they're directed. You know, people come together for a reason, even though they don't understand the, the reason at the time, that kind of thing. And I think this is the law of attraction again. In other words, you are a prepared mind. Your mind is asking a question or it's looking, searching for something. And uh, the universe recognizes that and provided you're focused on it uh, sufficiently. And if somebody else is also receptive to that idea or has the answer possibly, then uh, the, the universe somehow, I don't quite know how this works because this gets down to consciousness and so on and which is a big question mark. But in the electric universe, because everything is connected in real time, your needs can be actually responded to subconsciously by uh, another conscious entity. And I think um, this helps me understand, for instance, uh, my course through life, because generally I've had some big question that's been a stumbling block for me. And when I get to... Uh, my, the age I am now, I can sort of connect the dots back through my life and see that things just seem to work in such a way that I met the person that had the answer. And this is, a, this is what I would call synchronicity. Uh, and in doing that, it tends to reinforce this idea that as uh, living creatures, we uh, do have this connection which is not acknowledged by uh, medicine or by bio biologists at this stage, except for a few remarkable people, like uh, Rupert Sheldrake. Right, uh, right, from England, yes. The morphogenic yes, field? Exactly. Oh, yes. wow, yeah. And the idea of morphic resonance. And also uh, the cellular biologist, Bruce Lipton, who yes. I met in America some years ago, and uh, we exchanged books and DVDs. Uh, his work also fits. This is all the most advanced stuff in the world you're talking about. Yes, really. I agree. This is the cutting edge of the cutting edge. <laughs> yeah, and this is why I say that I'm happy that the Electric Universe cosmology can encompass all of these things and provide some framework so that you can fit them into this big picture. At present, those things are actually excluded from present science. You know, Rupert Sheldrake and Bruce Lipton uh, have great difficulty in, in being heard. Uh, they don't get any funding, and neither do I. <laughs> um, we do get some recognition from uh, members of academia, but even they have to be careful because... Uh, they have to keep their to jobs. Be... That's right. This yeah, reminds me idea. of the climate stuff. A lot of the climatologists can't step forward and say, look, what's going on is not right. They'll lose their jobs. People lose their funding, too, for the universities, and that can't happen, uh, you know? Yeah, I think this is an indictment of the way we do science today in um, institutions, government-funded institutions. Because then it all devolves down to the crassest politics. We've got away from the um, idea of the, um, the medieval idea of the uh, scholar, the independent scholar, 
and you know the Renaissance scholar they've been called, who often had a benefactor who was prepared to uh, uh, provide a living for these people to pursue their ideas without interference. Correct. And uh, these days it's very difficult to do that uh, because you're excluded uh, from uh, publication quite often. Uh, the if you say something which goes against the, the accepted paradigm, um, you have extreme difficulties uh, in being heard. Uh, I have a friend of mine here in Australia who has shown, he's a mathematician, has shown the errors in black hole theory, which shows that the right at the very heart of the mathematics there are problems. It's a bit like the schoolboy howler of dividing by zero and getting the answer infinity. Uh, and yet this is what's happened. I mean, it's quite remarkable just how silly some of these uh, mistakes have been. Um, but to uh, for him to be heard has been extremely difficult. I mean, uh, he puts down as his occupation now, I think, a gardener, <laughs> simply because he was uh, prevented from pursuing this work. And yet it's very important. I mean, how much of our ideas are based on Einstein's work? And he has shown that, uh, you know, basically most of it is wrong. Very interesting. I think you will be inspired. I did several interviews with Gavin Menzies, who wrote the book 1421 and 1434, and mm. did massive amounts of research to find out that the Chinese were in America long before we were. Mm. And he was attacked constantly. And then seven years after his book was written, it took off, and now he has thousands of researchers all over the world bringing evidence, forensic evidence, that that's so. And, of yes. course, you can't go through peer review for this. They won't let you through. So even when we, the public, look and say, oh, such and such is a peer-reviewed article or peer-reviewed project or whatever, the reality is it's those that are guarding the gate of what is that are doing the peer review. And if you're not in yep. line with what they want, you're not getting through, period. Exactly. And I think uh, in some respects, um, science has become unaccountable. You know, nobody's in control. Uh, the um, government people tend to uh, call on the experts, and they're always the same experts, for their views on where funding and that should go. And uh, so it just becomes a... Uh, it's uh, self-fulfilling. It's a black hole, if you like, <laughs> in science. <laughs> That's the yeah. way to use it. That's a good one. Yeah, sucks all the money and the uh, and all of the budding uh, geniuses, PhDs, and that into it, uh, and their work is futile. You know, I attend um, meetings here at the Research School of Astrophysics, and uh, I can't say a thing because um, it would be like talking Martian you know, to a to, to um, earthlings. It's considered a blasphemy, really, like spiritual yeah. blasphemy. Yes, yeah. and yet I think what I have to say could actually inspire people, if young people who want to do science, if they had some idea of where the big problems lay instead of being told, you know, we almost have it all figured out and uh, we've, we've practically seen the face of God in our equations. Uh, I mean, this is a great turnoff for uh budding astronomers and people who want uh, who are asking the big questions. I think one of the exciting things about your cosmology, the electric universe, is that it's an open system. Hmm. It doesn't just refer to itself. It's an open system. 
and it potentiates real learning, real discovery, real questions. There's yeah. no confines in there. That's, That's what's right. exciting to me about it. Yeah, it's truly interdisciplinary. You know, people pay lip service to interdisciplinary uh, work in universities at present, but none of them have any idea of what a truly interdisciplinary science really is. Can you talk to us a little bit about coherence? I have an interest in it. I don't know if you'd be interested to talk to us about this or if you want to do this on another segment, but I'm very interested in coherence because I have this sense that it's very important and we don't understand it. I've had physicists talk to me about how important coherence is, but I don't understand what they're saying. And I don't know mm -hmm. why they're saying it. Like Nassim Harriman talks about coherence. He talks about yeah. the vacuum. He talks about a lot of things. But I don't understand the part about coherence and why it's so important or what it is. Well, coherence is very important uh, because um, I suppose the best example is when we send spacecraft away from the Earth, they're traveling at fairly high speed and their velocity changes depending on where they are in their orbit around the sun or around another planet. And uh, to maintain communication with them, in other words, coherence, we have to keep tuning our radio receivers. You know, they, they, they twiddle the knobs on the radio receivers to change frequencies because the object is moving, it's getting Doppler effects and the uh, radio signal is actually shifting about on the dial. Only by a small amount, but it's enough to mean that you can actually lose contact, lose connection with the thing unless you can follow it on the radio dial. Now, in my view, biological systems operate by transferring signals, but not radio signals, I might add. They're direct electrical connections. And unless those connections are in real time, in other words, much faster than the speed of light, you will lose connection. So coherence requires that you have this signaling in real time. And this is the mind-body connection, in my view. For instance, um, uh, I reckon that um, these tennis players, when you see them return a serve that's coming at well over 100 kilometres an hour towards them, if they had to rely on nerve signals travelling at metres a second, you know, from their eyes to their brain and down there to their arm, they'd be standing there with their, waving their racket in the air while the ball's gone past and the ball boys picked it up. Uh, the signalling isn't fast enough. And also, if we are to be able to uh, explain things like, like extrasensory perception, that which seems that it doesn't seem to involve time or place, uh, you have to have this real-time connection. You have to have coherence. And so that's my view of the importance of coherence. It is absolutely fundamental to the operation of the universe. You can't have beautiful spiral galaxies. Uh, you can't have a solar system that works like clockwork. You can't have Newton's law without coherence. So it's that basic. Thank you for doing that. What do you envision the electric universe cosmology potentiating in the realm of discovery for humanity? I've called it um, childhood's end in the universe. In other words, we'll grow up. <laughs> <laughs> One of the... Because it came from uh, Velikovsky's work initially um, and his delving into all of the religions and myths and so on around the world about an age when the gods were in control and hurling thunderbolts in the sky and the heavens and the universe was staring, uh, sorry, mankind was staring annihilation in the face. This is where our doomsday fear comes from. When we under, actually understand this, we can be released from the bonds of the past. 
these are Velikovsky's words, he said, we still behave like traumatized individuals who have suffered from some uh, life-threatening event in our lives and we suppress the memory. And the problem then is that the memory is relived in vicarious ways by either visiting it on someone else, you know, dropping bombs on them, uh, or by um, irrational behaviour. And, I mean, you've only, you don't have to look very far to see our irrational behaviour. So he felt that our salvation from that continued um, insane behaviour on the part of the human race required that we truly understand our past. Now, the electric universe, one of the problems that Velikovsky faced was that he couldn't explain, although he had some very good ideas, and he, I visited him at his home in Princeton before he died, and he put me onto this notion of the electrical nature of gravity. Uh, he, he couldn't explain why um, Newton's law didn't give us a stable clockwork solar system in historical, prehistoric times because the astronomers just stood on their pulpit and said uh, it's impossible because Newton's laws forbid it. Well, of course, we don't really understand Newton's law fully, and I explain that in some of my work. But um, it was this dismissal of all of this evidence that the ancients tried to provide for us that there was something really serious going on in the solar system only a few thousand years ago. Uh, by discarding that, they missed the opportunity to understand the origins of religions. And when we begin to understand these things, we can then begin to heal from the wounds that we suffered facing annihilation globally, you know, the earth dying. Um, it would help us understand our present um, fear of uh, global warming, which is irrational because uh, humankind, our input into the global warming is absolutely infinitesimal. The sun is the center of the uh, energy focus in our solar system. It's the sun we have to look at and, and be concerned about because it's an electrical phenomenon. It is not fueled by internal, uh, by consuming itself. So we need to look at nearby stars and what's going on out in space. So uh, it's these fundamental issues that the human race has to address in order to grow up, in my opinion, and become sane members of the universe <laughs> but then I think we have a very important role to play in learning the real nature of the universe and uh, understanding ourselves better, life and what life means and I think it has a lot to say about um, uh, the intelligence inherent in the universe and we're part of that intelligence. I think it's a very hopeful uh, future. Of course there are all sorts of other things like uh, anti-gravity uh, may be possible because, although difficult, uh, it, it should be possible because it's an electrical force. Um, our energy sources, there are energy sources available to us which we uh, dismiss at present because it doesn't fit our paradigm um, and which would make life very easy for us. So there are all kinds of um, benefits down the, down the road, but we first of all have to get rid of all of these myths and legends and fairy stories that uh, underpin our present science. I'm very honored to have you on the show, and I so appreciate what you're sharing with us. Anything else you'd like to tell us? If I can just enthuse people enough to go to our websites, um, thunderbolts.info, we have a, a, 
a great range of wonderful people now who assist us for no income. <laughs> they do it out of the love of it and the love of discovery because we all feel like pioneers out there on the frontier. It's good fun. Um, if, they can, if people can go to thunderbolts.info or my website, uh, holoscience.info, uh, uh, then uh, I'd be very happy because the more people we can get involved, this is a, really at the point of trying to build the network. It's a network of people who are very interested and concerned to try and spread this information, particularly to younger people. Thank you so much for being on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Wallace Thornhill, the co-author of the book The Electric Universe and Thunderbolt of the Gods. I hope you'll join us again. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Wallace.